Welcome to Mom and Doc Talk, a podcast for health-conscious parents where you get the perspective of a mom and a dad who's also a pediatrician and pediatric emergency physician. Instead of Googling your way through parenting and hoping for the best, get trusted guidance and be the empowered, savvy, and decisive parent you know you can be. Sleep easy when you follow advice tested by doctors and tried by moms and dads. Here are your mom and dad hosts, Dr. Christopher Haynes and Azure Sullivan. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Mom and Doc Talk. I'm Dr. Chris with my co-host, Azure. Hello, everybody. This week's episode, we're going to talk about mental health. We're going to talk about the crisis in the United States. Uh, We are excited to have Kate McGinley, an expert in mental health for kids. She has a Master's of Science in Counseling in Psychology with a concentration in clinical mental health. She also has a Bachelor's of Art from Temple University in Psychology. And her work experience is extensive. She has 10 plus years of working in clinical mental health with various age groups, including children, adolescents, adults, and families in various settings, including schools, homes, professional offices, and the hospital. Um, She has three years as a certified family therapist working in homes, really improving communication around mental health. She's a certified trainer in QPR, Um, suicide prevention program, teaching a skill set to prevent suicide. And she's also a suicide attempt survivor with a personal history of some mental health. And she's going to talk to us today about her experiences, not only professionally, but personally as well. Hi, everyone. It's so wonderful to be here. Thank you, Chris and Azure, for having me. I really look forward to this. Yes, thank you again for being our guest. Um, You know, I've read in recent articles such as, you know, the NPR and the Washington Post, that mental health has really become a crisis in kids. One article called it a national emergency, and that sounds really scary as a parent. Um, So I first want to start today by just telling our audience that some of these topics, um, such as suicide, can be really difficult and challenging to discuss, which is why we have Kate with us today. So again, thank you, Kate. Uh, We just want to mention, if you are someone you know may be considering suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. If you need it in Spanish, 1-888-628-9454. Deaf and hard of hearing individuals, 1-800-799-4899. Or you can text the crisis text line by texting HOME, H-O-M-E, in capital letters to 741741. Again, that's 741741. So let's start with telling our audience what you do, Kate, and how you got into your expertise. Yeah, thank you, Asher. Um, so how, how did it start? It started when I was a kid. I, was, I wanted to know why people do the things they do. Why do they feel the things they feel and how can I help them? Um, I really didn't have a um, true understanding of mental health until my late teens um, when I started really experiencing my own personal journey with mental health, um, which kind of only led me even more to get in, into the field And um, so here I am now, 10 years plus experience working with so many different varieties of of people. 
And um, so what do I do now? Right now I run a crisis department at a local hospital um, where we see all um, crisis individuals that come into the emergency room, anyone with a mental health crisis, we are consulted to complete a crisis evaluation to help them get the services that they need, um, which is a wonderful thing. Um, but as you've said, it's, it's a mental health crisis. We're in, a, we're in a crisis right now with all the people coming in. With that being said, can you tell us how you work with the emergency team? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when someone comes to the emergency room and they are experiencing any kind of mental health crisis, we are, our department, the crisis team is consulted by, usually by the doctor or the nurse. Um, they give us a call up, they say we have so-and-so here, um, this is what they're uh, expressing and experiencing, can you come down and do an evaluation with them? Um, so that's exactly what we do. We go down, we sit with our client, we go through an entire evaluation with them, and uh, we help them. We help kind of take our clinical skills and hone into what we think services would be best supportive um, for what they're experiencing at this time. And um, I think one of the biggest aspects of this is that the evaluation is so important, but another really important piece is to realize that we're both humans in a room who um, are able to talk to each other and say, hey, listen, you know, um, I may not know what you're going through, but I'm here for you right now. And that's a big piece for me when we, when we meet with our clients is, is that evaluation, that clinical part, but also that part of being human. Dr. Chris, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I, th I think it's really important. And I've worked in many emergency departments and different emergency departments have different setups when it comes to mental health crisis. And definitely from a standpoint of having a crisis team available for you is absolutely amazing um, as an emergency physician. To try to do this by ourselves um, with the access throughout the country is extremely challenging. So I, I can't stress how important it is for families to find places that either have a crisis team or a crisis center. And you know, certainly, Kate, you can talk about the difference between an emergency department with crisis evaluation and a crisis center. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Sure. So an emergency department that has a crisis team um, is different than a crisis center. So a client that comes to an emergency room, and we call them clients and not patients because we don't want to take away, um, we don't want them to think that they're like a patient in, in, in a medical field. We want them to feel as humanized as possible when it comes to that. So one of the things that we do is we call them clients. And we say, you know, and when someone comes in through the emergency room, our client sees the doctor, does the normal work from a medical standpoint, and then consults it through us. In a crisis center, someone can just walk in uh, right off the street, walk in and be evaluated that very moment without seeing a doctor. So very different in, mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. Uh, going back to Dr. Chris, so one of the articles talks about the American Academy of Pediatrics calling this the National Emergency in Kids Mental Health. So what are your thoughts related to that? So I'm going to answer it. I'm going to ask Kate the same question because <laughs> I can tell you from an emergency standpoint in kids, it has been more and more of a crisis that we're seeing. And when I say crisis, we're starting to see children that are at younger ages. We're seeing more volume. Um, one of the emergency departments I work in, it's a 45-bed emergency department. At one point, there were 20 kids admitted to the admitted waiting to be placed to inpatient. 
with a psychiatric emergency of some sort. And I think when we talk about the American Academy of Pediatrics, what is that? That's kind of a coalition of the nation's leading experts. And the American Academy of Pediatrics, in conjunction with the Children's Hospital Association, as well as the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, really came together. And they released a letter in the last year that basically said, we're concerned. The letter said the rates of childhood mental health concerns were steadily rising over the past decade. Um, this has become a little worse and pretty much much worse with coronavirus and really reaching out to schools, to different areas to begin to provide more service and to really think about it in a very, very different way. Um, there are certainly other articles that say, you know, one third of adolescents are experiencing depression uh, with one fifth of that group having suicidal thoughts. Um, there are other articles out there that say 48% of young adults had some sort of mental health symptom or symptoms during the pandemic. And one of the things that became very important out of the American Academy of Pediatrics article was teenage girls have become a particular risk and their suicide attempts were up 51% in girls aged 12 to 17 um, when compared to previous years. That is so high. It's really scary. And overall in the data in 2020 showed that emergency department visits for mental health emergencies rose by 24% for children between the ages of five and 11. I'm sure uh, you can comment on that. I, I, I'm sure Kate will as well. But <laughs> what stands out to me that's really is a red flag to me is that five to 11. And so young. And it's up 31% for 12 to 17 year olds. And, you know, we know, and we're both parents and we've seen the impact and I've seen it personally on my own children of what the pandemic did. But this article is very clear that it's been increasing over the last 10 years. And it's also been shown um, that it's been disproportionately affecting children of color as well. Um, so I think it's really important for our listeners to know that. Um, what are your thoughts, Kate? Oh, so many. Um, so first things first, um, I think one of the things I want to address is like we keep using this word crisis, right? And like sometimes people are like, well, how do I know if it's crisis or not? Like what meets criteria of crisis? Crisis is essentially something that's impeding you from being able to achieve your everyday life's things. Um, so when we speak about adolescence, the one thing we're seeing constantly, and I'm sure Dr. Chris, you probably see this frequently in the emergency room, is um, kids coming in, I can't go to school. I can't do it. Every day. I, I, I can't do it. I, I, I don't want to go. I, I don't want to get out of bed. Um, I'm scared. I'm anxious. Like, so... Those are, that's a crisis, right? That's impeding your ability to live everyday life. Um, so now we look at like this national epidemic, essentially what's happening is um, children at such a young age, especially post COVID uh, are now trying to revamp what life looks like and um, reintegrate themselves into to their social lives, school, things like that. And and what we're seeing is in the emergency room with this strong uptick of adolescents is that, is that crisis is I feel like I can't continue to live my life or like, I feel like I'm not being the age that I'm supposed to be. I feel like I want to lay in bed all day. I feel really nervous. I'm scared. I'm anxious. Um, 
or I'm sad. We hear that a lot. I'm just sad. I don't know why I'm sad, but I'm sad. Um, and that's kind of what we're seeing. And, and, you know, when, from when I started the position working in, um, a hospital setting to now, what I'm, it's just a drastic change of how many adolescents, um, we're seeing on a, a daily basis and for a long extended period of time. I'm really glad that you mentioned, you know, kind of what is a crisis because crisis is such a very strong word that people think that I think people think that oh, something actually has to happen bad, like an actual event, mm-hmm. like, you know, a, a homicide or something really drastic for that to be considered a crisis. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm really glad that you kind of defined that term because, you know, it could just, it's out of the norm, really. So it doesn't have to be, you know, on the level of one to 10, all the way to 10 in order for them to come into and uh, achieve help. So I also would add that I think people, I think, as you said, people are scared. They don't know what the term crisis means. They're almost scared of that word crisis. Yeah, like, and, I don't have a crisis. I'm fine. And they also don't want to have their kid labeled with, uh, that, yeah, with that crisis. Yeah, sure. Um, would, you agree, would you agree, Kate? And I think people are afraid, and a lot of times they, they seek help late, and mm-hmm. they come in when it's the crisis has escalated significantly. Yeah, and I think culturally, we need to keep in mind crisis looks different for everyone in a in different cultural settings. Um, so we talked about, you know, minorities seeing a strong, um, you know, shift in mental health in minorities. Um, oftentimes, they don't seek help um, as a sh- as it sometimes may be seen as shameful, or again, doesn't meet that quote unquote on. Unt- criteria of crisis. Um, There's no reason for why I should have a crisis, therefore I shouldn't have a crisis. And if we all operated in that day, in that way of the world, it would be a mess, right? Like, because there isn't always a reason for why we feel the things we feel or why we're going through something. Um, So that's definitely something that we're seeing as well um, in the, you know, minority or um, cultures. Can you give me a story of something you've seen in an emergency department? I mean, this is for both of you, you, uh, Kate and Dr. Chris. A, a story that you've seen, something, a case you've seen in the emergency department related to the mental health, you know, give us details. Maybe that one that really sticks in your mind. Yeah, I mean, there's so many stories. So I, you meet one person, you just meet one story. Um, but you do see a lot of similar trends. And so one that we see a lot is is an adolescent. Frequently, we've been seeing a lot of adolescent girls and females. And when they're coming in and they're describing what's going on for them, it's, it's words that um, are kind of vague. So it would be like, I just feel really sad or I just feel um, scared, right? And then there's this buzzword that's all the way around everywhere is I'm anxious. I just feel really anxious, anxiety, 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 right? And so those I think are the common three things that we're hearing. Um, and, And a lot of times these adolescents don't really know what are behind those feeling words. They just know those feelings words. So part of our job is to kind of figure out what they mean and how's that impacting their everyday living and and what's going on. But particularly that I'm sad, I don't really want to do much anymore. Um, uh, When we prompt about suicide, have you been having thoughts of killing yourself? Have you been having thoughts of harming yourself? 
um, we're seeing a lot more yeses than we are no. And I think that's one of the things frequently that's happening is, yeah, I've thought about dying and yeah, I've thought about how I would do it. Um, and I'm sure as parents, that's like, oh my God, you know, that's scary. I mean, it's scary to, to the adolescent child who's experiencing it, but it's also very scary to the parents. So I would say more often than not, that's kind of what we're seeing in the emergency room. I'm sad, I'm scared, I'm anxious. And those three words have a really hard time being defined by an adolescent other than I, this is just how I feel. So our job is Mm -hmm. just to humanize with them and say, well, tell me what's going on. What does life look like for you? How are things going with your friends? What's, what's life like at home with your parents? Um, Do you have siblings, pets, things like that? Um, I don't know, Dr. Chris, if you want to speak a little bit more to that as well. Yeah. Do you have a story? Yeah. I have too many stories, Uh. things I can't get out of my head. And, you know, you probably heard me leaning this direction when I talked about the percentages increasing. And for me, it's the young kids. And as Kate said, you know, we see adolescents every day. It saddens us very much because, you know, my experience, uh, just an aside, I do interviews for high school students and they're prepped to, and it's a prep interview for them to either go out into the workforce and interview for a job or go to college. And it's something I've always done with the local high school. And I always get to a question at the end and almost undoubtedly, every one of them, nine out of 10 tells me they're stressed, they're anxious or they're depressed. And that really, to me, I walk away every year going, God, what's going on? Um, you know, is it social media? And we're gonna talk a little bit about that later. What What is causing all of this? Is it just our world? I think for me, I go back to a particular seven-year-old that I will never get out of my head. And there were lots of other issues going on in this child's family, but they had a butcher knife underneath their bed. The child. The child. And they were homicidal and they were suicidal. And I just go back and think about, you know, what I was doing at seven, eight, nine years old. I was playing baseball. I I didn't think of any of those things. And this child looked me square in the eyes and I said, do you have a plan to hurt yourself? And as physicians, as Kate said, we medically screen. We're kind of getting them first. And one of the things parents should know as well is that when we triage people, and we've I don't think we've ever talked about this in the podcast, is we're going through and we're figuring out who's the sickest and who's not the sickest, and we treat the sickest first. But some of our questions that we ask of adolescents and even young kids, you know, are you having thoughts of hurting yourself? Are you having thoughts of hurting other people? Because it's become so prevalent. Um, I just, I can't get out of my head this child looking at me and saying that they wanted to stab themselves with the knife and putting myself in their position and really just looking at the parents. And, you know, there were lots of issues with the parents and, the little girl told me, I said, you know, really what's going on? And she said, you know, my mommy and daddy are struggling. My mom works overnights. My dad works during the day. They were very hardworking parents. The mom was a nurse. The dad was a fireman and they had a new baby and they were struggling financially. And she said, it would just be better if I wasn't around because they wouldn't have to pay for me. Oh, that's so sad. And I just, to this day, I, it's, 
I'm sure as we do this podcast going forward, you'll hear some of the stories that I can't get out of my head. We're really good as ER doctors of kind of walking away at the end of our shifts and really isolating what we see and not bringing it to our families and our friends. There's that's one of the stories that, you know, I wake up at night thinking about. Yeah, that's so sad. I, going back to what you said, I was like, when I was seven, I don't even like, was did I even really, really know what a knife did? You know, like I, I, I can't think like, uh, yeah, the times have definitely changed and it's so sad. The thoughts of, um, of children thinking about death so early. Um, I think everyone at some point in their life, when they're children, they, they, they think curious or they just don't know about it. Right. Right. But the, the actual intention of wanting to die, um, it, it, it's, something that just we're just seeing so much more of now as an end result of not feeling like they can possibly feel better and that you know i I have those stories very similar to dr haynes of you know people who keep me the stories keep me up at night because it's could i have done more you know people who have come from multiple suicide attempts at just a very young age of 11 um but have tried to take themselves out of this world multiple times um, you, you don't take, it doesn't take away the human part of you that breaks for them. That's for sure. I, I would add one other thing and, you know, we'll talk more about parents later, but these parents in particular, you know, they, they didn't get it. They wanted to take their child home mm-hmm. and we couldn't let them go home because it wasn't an environment that this child could be in because they couldn't fully supervise. And, you know, that's something we see a fair amount where a child will come in with crisis or have suicidal thoughts or homicidal thoughts. And it's hard for a parent to let a child go either to an inpatient facility. It's it becomes very challenging for everyone. And I, I like Kate using the word we use patients, but I like the word client. Um, I like that humanization. And we try to tell the parents that, you know, we don't may not have gone through this, but we empathize and we sympathize and we're trying to help you to the best of our ability. And what we do, you know, from a medical standpoint, as Kate talked about, is I have to medically go in and try to figure out whether something bad is going on because there are other things that can cause you to have uh, suicidal thoughts or to have depression or anxiety. I'll give you a great example. I had a seven-year-old that I was on the receiving end of after he had been seen three or four times in an emergency department. And he was altered, he was having suicidal thoughts, and at the end of the day, he had been ingesting salicylates, which is aspirin, and he was developmentally delayed, but he was he was eating Ben Gay. And when we figured it, finally figured it out, he had been seen in an ER, treated for anxiety at, at in grade school, he was given a, a Valium-like drug multiple times, and we looked at him and his vital signs were off. Something was wrong. He had edema of his brain that was causing him to think wrong. So there are medical causes of this, and what my job is to go in and say, look, are there drugs or alcohol causing this? Are there, um, is there a brain tumor? Is there a thyroid issue? All of those medical things. So as Kate talks about, you know, the ER physicians work with the crisis team to really work together, figure out a plan. But our job is really to work with them and also do that medical screening as well. And so, you know what, they're medically screened. 
they're good to go. And, you know, why don't you evaluate them and we'll kind of talk together and try to figure that out. No, I know I don't, I'm not in the actual, you know, medical realm as you guys are. I do have a story that, you know, at the time is so many years ago. So like it wasn't as prevalent as it is now for mental health being a red flag, but um, for young kids, I knew a young boy and he must've been, I don't know, yeah, right around that age of like eight, nine, ten, and he was caught with knives under his pillow. And I don't know the process of what his family did for him, but I knew that in the end he was taken to um, a facility where they were like watching him and he stayed there for like a week or so. Uh, and you can visit them and whatnot, but it was, uh, again, I don't know if it, they went to the emergency room and then it was dictated then that he would go to this facility, but it was a facility for children with these um, problems or these uh, concerns. And he was staying there for like a week or so. Um, and I mean, is this a very common thing? You know, you, you take them and you place them in this facility. Um I think I think that's something for Kate and I to maybe talk through about what what it's like and what that process is, Kate. So I talked a little bit about my medical screening and what I do. What what does a mental health screening look like for you guys? What's that process look like? Yeah. So you know, we get the call, we come down, you know, the doctor always gives us a little briefing about what's going on, but, you know, truthfully, we're walking to a, into an, a room of an open book, hopefully, to really just dive into what's going on. Um, every crisis worker has their own approach, their own personality on how they perform an evaluation and assessment. But um, for me, speaking just individually, for me, when I'm completing an assessment, going into that room... I'm making sure I'm, I'm not going in, um, you know, to be perceived at all as any way, any form threatening or, um, you know, powerful. I just want to be seen as another human being to this person so that they feel comfortable. So there's some semantics for me personally, it's sitting at eye level with the client instead of standing over them or standing above them. It's um, a relaxed posture, especially with the team. They get a little apprehensive, like, oh, uh-oh, am I going to be in trouble for things that I say? Um, so I really leave that uh, leave that outside the room and, and just make it just between them two. So sometimes it's just asking them, hey, you know, what's your name? You know, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Um, tell me some things that you like to do, what, you know, what kind of music you're into, kind of get to know them as a person before I go in and ask the deep, dark questions. Um, I, you know, when I say deep, dark questions, those questions are, are you thinking about suicide? Have you thought about hurting yourself? Are you, have you hurt anyone else? Have you thought about hurting anyone else? Do you have any access to weapons? Um, these are all things that are telling, giving us information about their scenario about their life right and then the other big questions that come about is trauma which is a really hard topic to talk about um it makes people uncomfortable and sometimes it can even make us crisis workers uncomfortable to ask such personal questions so it, it's kind of creating that realm of being able to address any physical, sexual, emotional abuse, any domestic violence that they're currently experiencing. Um, 
ever been a witness of a crime, if we're talking about adolescence, we are talking about bullying. Have you been a witness? Have you been a victim of bullying? Have you, um, is that, uh, how are things at school? What's going on at school? Um, what's going on at home? Who do you live with? Who do you, my one favorite question that I always ask, always ask is, who do you consider family? Right? Because I can ask you who your family is and you can tell me mom, dad, brother, sister, and the dog, Charlie, but that doesn't mean that's family to you. And a lot of times what we find about people is they, they are naming people outside of their little, um, like interpersonal, their inner, um, family that they support. This is giving me ideas of who they find as support, getting me, um, in the back of my brain, I'm building puzzle pieces, right? So I'm, I'm listing their words. I'm hearing their words. I'm reciting it back to them. Um, I'm not changing their narrative of music directly as they said it, um, because I want them to feel like they're being heard, not that it's being changed. So, and and then of course we address, you know, drugs and alcohol. Um, are you currently using anything? Have you used anything? Do you experiment? Um, you know, we guess we see a lot of vaping with the adolescents. Um, you know, people are using merit kids are using marijuana um you know where are you getting your marijuana from you, you are getting it from someone on the street or are you buying it from someone from a shop um just because that can happen that can affect things um and so this evaluation process is just a lot of talking back and forth and giving them the opportunity to just allow themselves to talk for themselves and this at this point i'm asking mom and dad to leave the room oh yeah i was just asking my next question is i'm yeah. sure this makes parents very uncomfortable yeah and i mean let's be realistic like at 14 years old if my parents are in the room and someone was asking me if i smoke pot or if i'm thinking about dying oh yeah you're not I'm gonna, say, gonna say no absolutely right? it's absolutely like so that's why we ask the parents to leave and and that there's that's always a conversation before it's not like hey get out of the room i'll call you back it's this is what my process is going to be and then afterwards can we all sit down and talk together because i want to hear more of your information as a parent um so it gives that space and privacy for the the client the adolescent and then it gives parents the opportunity to also tell their experience of what's going on do you have a lot of parents that give you some pushback um you know the pushback we get is uh is the pushback from the parent that doesn't want to be there because the school sent them. Ah, okay. That's kind of the pushback they get. Uh, and, and go ahead. Um, I'm sure Dr. Chris could speak to yeah, that he's, as well. Yeah, he's looking like he's, he's yeah. he wants to say. Most states vary, but at least our state, anybody 13 and above for various reasons, and a lot of it is for um, sexual health, uh, we are required to have parents step out. And I typically give them the same spiel every time. And it is, I am legally allowed to speak with your child alone. Um, in general, anything that is life-threatening to your child, I will tell you about, but otherwise I will remain confidential, have confidentiality with your child. Um, and we do it in a nice way. And I would say, at least from my perspective, 95, 98% of parents don't have any issue with it. They kind of giggle, they laugh. Um, and we deal with some issues. You know, we deal with kids that, you know, this is a tangent, but, um, you know, kids that are potentially pregnant, you know, 
that can cause stress and anxiety. And, you know, we, even with sexuality, we want kids to talk to their families. We want them to have a conversation and have that openness. Um, but it is a challenge when it comes to, yeah, I'm using marijuana daily and I'm coming in with either a mental health issue or a medical issue. Where do you draw that line between getting parents involved? Um, and it can be very difficult. So I'm sure you get some pushback occasionally, Kate, on not wanting to step out. That's a red flag for me as well, um, that something else is going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, now that we're, we brought that up, I mean, what can a parent do while in an emergency department to support their kid in this way, you know, in or outside of the room? And and Kate, I'm going to let you answer that. What What would you want a parent to do when they're in this environment and what would you want them not to do? So this is always a tricky one for me because in the state of Pennsylvania, at the age of 14, you have the rights to your mental health, which means you have the control of who I'm allowed to talk to and who I'm not allowed to talk to. And when you say I, you mean yourself. The Myself. The, the client, as a, the client as or the patient. The crisis team, yes. No, the right? crisis so team. Yeah. If I walked into Susie, who's a 14 year old, and I asked Susie, is it okay if I speak privately with your mom? And she says, no, I'm not allowed to speak to her mother. Oh, yeah. Um, if, if I think that Susie needs to go inpatient for mental health, um, Susie has the right to say no because she is 14 years old. So I, I'm thinking back to your question about the kickback. That's a lot of what we get kickback around is how are you going to let my 14-year-old dictate what's good for her and what's not, what's not good for them? Mm-hmm. Um, so how, as a parent, can you be supportive in this moment is my job is never to take away any of the power from the parent. And my job is also never to take away any of the power from the client. So that's a balancing act. Um, but sometimes that just simply is coming in and saying, whoa, okay, let's, let's take a step back and let's figure out, let's make a plan together. How does this sound? I'm going to speak with Susie and then I'm going to speak with mom and dad. And then we're all going to sit together in the room and we're going to talk together. Would that be okay with you? And, um, I'm always asking for consent. Is that okay with you? Because I'm not there to make decisions for them as a parent. Um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm always reiterating to them that I understand that this is probably really difficult, that they have to be here in the emergency room for a mental health crisis with their child. And it can be scary and it can be confusing and it can be uncertain. Um, so I'm hearing suggestions from them as well. And I, this is usually in the room with the child is saying, you know, what would you like to see as the outcome for today? You know, how, what would make you feel better that this trip was to the emergency room was worth it was successful for you what does that look like for you um so everyone's getting a say in in the in the process um how does a parent be supportive in that moment um it's i think being there is is being supportive um being patient patient um you know i think giving and Dr. Chris might be able to speak to this as well, is, is giving parents the space to take a break too. Um, so sometimes you're sitting in the, in the emergency room for a long time, just based upon whatever's going on medically at the hospital, um, you know, being tied up with other patients, things like that. You may be sitting there for hours. Um, and so being able to say to the parent, hey, 
Can we have a quiet room over there? If you just need to go and take a break for a second, that's totally okay. You know, or we have a cafeteria down there. It's okay to go take a 15 minute break if you would like. Um, again, humanizing the experience instead of it being so, um, you know, one thing after another. So Dr. Chris, what do you think about what parents can do? Um, I would echo what Kate said. And a lot of it is just being there, being present and supporting their child. Um, I've seen parents get angry at their kids. That's not the thing you want to do. Uh, I'm sure Kate's seen very similar where we have parents that are, I would say, exacerbating the situation and whatever you can do to be supportive. You know, certainly you don't want to be there as a parent. You're, you don't want your child there, um, but they're there and they have the crisis. So if they're having the crisis, don't make it your crisis. It's kind of like I think about a trauma, right? One of my mentors said to me one time when he was controlling a room, there was lots of, you know, lots of loud noise as we were trying to resuscitate a patient. And he stopped everyone in the room and said, this is not your trauma, it's the patient's trauma. And that's kind of the way I approach parents. This is that's really good clearly, advice. clearly it's, a, it's a family crisis, it's a lot of crisis, but the focus of the crisis is the child. And certainly there may be lots of therapy that, and lots of things that the entire family needs, but at the moment, it's about the child. And Kate's, Kate's absolutely correct, you know, trying to give them a break. One of the challenges is, and we're going to talk about this, and, you know, I kind of giggled to myself when Kate said hours. I was actually thinking days and weeks. And depending on where you are in the United States, what emergency department is, there's a shortage of inpatient beds for mental health. There's a shortage of psychiatrists. There's a shortage of pretty much everything around mental health. And that's the other reason that it's a national crisis. And we didn't really talk about that. And there are times, depending on what you're there for, you may not have a bed for three, four days. Imagine that as a parent where, you know, you might see Kate a couple times a day. You might see me once or twice, but you're really just waiting and you can't be discharged because it's not safe. And you can't be put into a bed because there are no beds available. And that's a challenge. So and that's that's just after the evaluation. So how long does that evaluation take? An evaluation usually only takes, I mean, about an hour. Um, obviously more if there's more to dive into and, and disclose and things like that. Um, from, a, from a crisis standpoint, it's about an hour. But there's so much like work from the back end if someone has to go to another facility, to an inpatient facility, and that's where the wait really happens, is, is that this lack of uh, resources and bed availability right now is, a, is an absolute detriment to the mental health. Tell us and tell our listeners a little bit about what that process is like. You know, you've made a decision that a patient needs to go to inpatient treatment. What are you doing? You know, I, I've had parents come in repeatedly. I can't get access to my child. I can't get services for my child. And we'll talk about, you know, partial hospital programs and various other programs. We'll ask you some questions in a minute. But what are you doing? You know, I, you're kind of like I would describe this amazing person who gets our kids where they need to go. And parents, I don't think, fully appreciate that or understand it, the amount of legwork that you're doing to get them into the right place. 
Oh man, I really wish the process was uh, some way easier and more inclusive for the family. Um, but when we decide or determine, and I, I say we because I believe us as a team, uh, the client, the family, and myself, not just me making this decision for someone, and, and of course the medical team as well, but um, when the decision is made that someone needs inpatient uh mental health facility where that means they go and they stay there for days at a time, usually about a week. Um, what that looks like is us beginning to, we go up to our office, we um, create what's called a clinical, is out all the uh, medical, um, biopsychosocial evaluation that we just completed, consents, things like that, we create a clinical packet. And then we take that clinical packet and we send it to every inpatient mental health facility within the tri-state area. So in, in Pennsylvania, for us, it's the tri-state area to every single facility to check if there's bed availability. So we're picking up the phone, we're calling every single place, we're asking if there's bed availability. If there is, the clinicals get sent. Nine out of ten times we're getting sorry, no, we're filled. Sorry, no, we're filled. Sometimes we get sorry, no, we're filled for the next five days. Oh my gosh. The beds are all discharge beds are already taken. And these people you said tri-state area. So parents could be traveling long distance. And that Correct. can and I would add that that tends to be one of the parent frustrations that I've seen is my child's going an hour and a half away. And the amount of craziness that that adds to them. And I'm sure, Kate, you've seen the same thing. And parents frequently, I, at least I see it, where they come in and they want X facility. And if I had to give advice to a parent, it's go to the facility you can get into. And I frequently tell parents that. But what are your thoughts about that, Kate? Yeah, I mean, again, the the bed availability is so devastating right now to getting the care that clients need. Um, so when a bed does become available, we do really emphasize jumping on that bed. Now, I always want to take into account, like I'm not, I'm, I'm going, the moment I hear that this client could be accepted to, to a facility, I'm going down to that room and I'm talking with the client and the parent and saying, okay, here is an option. What do you think about it? You know, again, I, I'm big on don't take the power away from people. Make sure they feel included in this decision. And part of that is, you know, I know this is far away, but let's look at the options here. Let's weigh out what what could potentially be the case if we don't take this. You could be sitting here in the emergency room for another five days to get just to get the bed. Or do we take what's being able to be presented to you right now and get your, your child the care that they need? Um, because the other big unfortunate part about this, and I'm sure, Dr. Chris, you've probably seen this as well, is that when someone is waiting in the emergency room to go to an inpatient facility, they are not getting any mental health care, meaning they are not speaking to a therapist, they are not speaking to a psychiatrist, um, they're getting zero mental health care. Um, so with that being said, besides the, the check-ins from the crisis team and the check-ins from the medical staff, you're not getting anything to support the crisis that's happening. Um, and I always feel like sometimes that's more detrimental to our adolescents. Um, and when they're just sitting there in a four by four wall room with no stimulation. 
come. So that's what the process looks like. When you get someone accepted to a facility, then you organize um, benefits of care for the insurance company and you're setting up transport and you're also providing a lot of psychoeducation and information for the family about what that's going to look like in inpatient. Now, I'm very blessed to be very aware of what inpatient is like based upon my own personal history. So I'm able to let people know what that experience is like um, from a firsthand perspective, not just as a, as a professional. So. Now you're, you're kind of talking from worst case scenario. You definitely need a bed. You can't leave the hospital. You can't go home. We need to admit you, right? But what are the other options after the emergency room evaluation? And Dr. Chris, you can, you know, put some input in here too. You know, do you, you discharge them home? Is there inpatient psych? Is uh, what's called partial outpatient programs? I would start off, and I'll certainly defer this question to Kate. This is her expertise. And what's important from my standpoint is if there's anyone that's leaving the facility, and when I say leaving the facility, I mean emergency department, that we're 100% comfortable with their safety. And maybe Kate can talk a little bit about contracting for safety and what that means and how you guys do that. And, you know, the other thing I would add is the environment in the emergency department, as Kate talked about, you're there for days. Um, we are also have to be extremely careful while they're there with their safety and they're not eloping or leaving the hospital or they're not, you know, trying to hurt themselves while they're in the hospital. So we're actually changing them out of their clothes. They're not getting access to their cell phones. Um, it's a tough environment for an, an adolescent. It's also a very tough environment for a parent. Plus the, the risk of getting sick with something in the emergency room. I, I would say at that point, it's probably the least of our problems. <laughs> the least of your problems. But, you know, think about... It adds to it. It adds to the friction, there's stress all around it. Correct. And you're in a hospital bed and sleeping in a hospital bed. There's nothing comforting about it. Parents are getting a cot and they're, you know, having hospital food. It, it's not a great environment. But maybe, Kate, if you could talk a little bit about what it's like to contract someone for safety and then, you know, the intensive outpatient programs and the PHPs and things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, there's many of times we've had um, a game plan A to have a client go to inpatient and then, you know, four or five days later, they're still sitting in the emergency room and we're looking at plan B. And that's not because we want to say, oh, we don't deal with it anymore. It's time to go. It's, what good is this doing for your mental health crisis right now by just sitting in this room? Like Dr. Chris said, you know, you you don't have the comfort of your own clothes. You don't have your cell phone. Um, you have a little TV on the wall, but other than that, you don't, you don't have stimulation. Um, so we look at that as, as, okay, if the option is feasible for this person to go home, well, this, that's not taken lightly. So that's a big conversation between the crisis team, the doctor, um, and the family and the client about what are we going to put into place to ensure that this client is going to be able to remain safe if they return home. So if this client, say, was at risk of um, suicide, uh, having suicidal thoughts or wanting to harm themselves or kill themselves, I want to know what are we going to be able to put into place to ensure that's not going to happen. That means locking off all medications. Can parents get a lockbox, secure a lockbox to put all medications in there? Can they eliminate means to any kind of weapons? If there are, and when even that includes kitchen knives, you know, I've had multiple conversations. If can you lock up your kitchen knives? 
Well, that will be really inconvenient. Yes, it will be really inconvenient, but your child will stay alive, right? Can, can you perform routine checks throughout the night? Um, you know, every 30 minutes, um, can someone sleep in the bed or in the room with your child to ensure that they're safe? Um, we go to extremes of, can you take the door off of their room until you feel comfortable that they've gained, you know, some stability in their mental health? I'm sure a lot of this, they don't actually think like, oh, do I really have to put my knives away? But I think that's the initial shock of it. Like, oh my God, is this for real? And you're like, yeah, this is for real. Like, you need to think about this. And then it kind of sinks in. So I think the shock factor is still there. Exactly. Um, Yes, exactly. And it's always going to be that immediate, like, fight back before it is like, oh, maybe this is like an actual really good idea because... Mm-hmm. We never want to put that possibility even on the on the plate. Um, so contracting for safety is a big, big conversation. And and from our standpoint, you know, we're making actual like physical paper contracts that, you know, the parent gets, the, the client gets, um, that we we retain a copy of that just goes through, outlines everything that is needs to be addressed in order for this to be. Um, safe for the client to return home. And then on top of that, we're connecting them with resources and services so they're not just without. A lot of times that will look like getting them set up with a partial hospitalization program. And what a partial hospitalization program is, is a um, five days a week, nine, usually from nine to three thirty. So usually within the school hours um, where the client would go for the day they would have individual therapy, group therapy, and they'd also meet with a psychiatrist and they go there for about two weeks. Um, it's pretty intensive. Again, I can speak from personal experience. Um, it, it is very in- intensive, but very helpful. Um, so we're getting connected them to services. So we're not just saying go ahead, go home. We're saying go home and start this program on Monday. Mm-hmm. And you know, here's your Here's the contact information. Here's the person you're going to meet with. Here's your intake time um, so that no one's left with the empty pieces of the puzzle. Uh, we, a lot of this is around COVID, right? There's a lot mm-hmm. that, because of the impacts of COVID. And I kind of want to correlate that with social media and screen time and the lack of being in school because of COVID, being, you know, that, that human interaction right? Positive stimulus. Um, so I kind of, you know, both you guys, Kate, we, what, what have the impacts of COVID have, have you seen specifically? And you can maybe tie that into the, maybe the social media, the screen time that our kids, you know, allowing them on their phones, the internet, school, all that stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was just having this conversation with a friend. Um, I would say it hasn't been until like maybe the last three months that I've really been hearing COVID has taken a big effect on me. COVID has really hit me. Um, the isolation has really hurt me. Um, and when I explore that further, it's, um, you know, I, everything was from at home and now I have to go back and socialize with people and it feels awkward. It feels awkward. They're not used to that human interaction anymore and they're yeah. less likely to reach out to people for help, to, you know, all those positive feelings we get when we talk to a friend or a family member. And now it's weird. But add, but add the adolescence. Oh yeah. And they add don't your even brain talk. is they developing. Talk. They don't talk at all. No. There's so many things going through your mind. Emotions are up. You know, everything is going crazy and I cannot imagine being, you know, an adolescent in COVID time. 
Yeah, and I, I always go back to when I when I talk about social media and mental health, I always go back to this one particular client that I worked with um, who she was there. She, it was determined she needed to go to inpatient psych to get stabilization for her mental health. Now, mind you, when people go to inpatient psych, I just want to preference this, it doesn't always have to be because they're suicidal or homicidal. Sometimes it's a medication management that needs to be done in a... Um, all-inclusive setting um, where they're monitored for 24 hours or 48 hours or a span of time so it doesn't always have to mean that someone's gonna you know complete suicide or or whatnot but this particular um girl needed to go to inpatient because she needed a medication change that needed to be monitored in a in an appropriate setting and um, she had asked for her phone before she left and her parents were hesitant to let her to do it um but, and so when we asked why she wanted her phone, she said she wanted to text her friends to let them know that she was going to be, you know, away for a while. Um, and here it turns out she let 40 of her closest friends know that she was going to inpatient. So like her connection to 40 people, I don't even know that I know 40 people that I want to talk to on a regular basis, yeah. but you know, this idea of being so connected with people at all times that was just her drive. Like, I need to let these people know that I'm not going to be available. Um, and I need to let, you know, people know that I'm going to inpatient. And I think it's just become such an identity for people. I, I, when you say that word isolation, I, it makes me think I had this conversation the other day. It's like, we are so like in 2022, you know, we are so available to so many connections, right? We are so connected, yet we are so isolated mm-hmm. at the same time, more than we've ever been. Isn't that funny? When you sit yeah. back and you think about it, you're like, oh my God, yeah, I have 4,000 friends on Facebook, but I only maybe know two of them and I only talk to one and maybe that's like every Sunday. Um, you know. And we're swiping through TikTok. We're constantly looking at other people's lives, that dopamine rush, you know, the fear of missing out. We have growing up, the adolescence and being a teenage boy, girl, um, all of these emotions and even dating, you know, you couldn't date or try dating, uh, during COVID. It's just, you know, relationships in general. So there's so many things that, you know, in my opinion, like there's so many ups and downs just with that alone. And then you put regular like crisis on top of it. Just like, you know, I am, I am just sad. I am depressed or I have other things going on that are at home that I need to talk to you about. And it, it's, it's tough for them to open up. Yeah, um, and I think it's this this idea of keeping up with the Joneses. Um, oh, yeah. That I need to, you know, I need to look and present the way that everyone else thinks is cool or looks good or feels good, and that is so much pressure, like so much pressure for these adolescents, whether it's academically, socially, um, being an athlete. There's just so many pressures, and then throw social media on top of it to be the really – identifying piece it, it's um they're just bombarded bombarded yeah i i it's challenging and from an emergency physician standpoint i am very scared of the the long lasting impacts of this Me and though know, it's it really worries me and not only you know from a standpoint of adolescence but adults because not only do you have adolescents that are having mental crises and mental health issues, their parents are having them as well. 
and you could know, be surrounding work, could be surrounding yeah. their job. Like, oh, COVID really impacted my job. I, I lost mm-hmm. my business. I, I I think the one thing, and you know, we've been, I would say, on a very we've been talking about very negative things in this podcast, right? So, if we think about this from a positive standpoint, we do see kids getting better. I'm sure you do as well, Kate. And we see kids that are what I'll call them bounce backs. You know, they've gotten better. They've been on a medication regimen and then they change their medicine and they're back three, four months later. Um, We all see that. Um, But there are kids that do well and that are, and I think that's the success of our mental health facilities in the country, the psychiatrists. And, you know, if we can start to build them and start to work more as a team together, I think there's a huge opportunity. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, I I think there's so much need right now in terms of how to reform um, the mental health system in general to be more supportive of people. Um, And, you know, but I, I, I agree with you, Chris. I do think that there are there are a lot of success stories. There are a lot of people that come into our emergency room and never come back again because they're doing well. And I love that. I love that success story. Um, I just wish we we had more of it. Um, and, and I think we can get there. Um, but the biggest thing is continuing to talk about mental health as mental health and not a stigma and not a problem. So, Kate, a couple of things that we see a lot in the emergency department, I wonder if you can talk about it. It's kind of multi-pronged. Um, we're seeing a lot of self-harm and, you know, cutting. Um, I would also ask you, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about what I would call involuntary admission to an inpatient facility versus um, voluntary and what the differences are and how that happens. We talked a little bit about 14 year olds being able to control their own ability to say, I want to come into the hospital. I don't, uh, but also explaining to our audience what happens when they don't, but we think they need to. Yeah. So to address the first piece um, of self-harm, you know, the behaviors of cutting, um, I think the most important thing for us to understand just as humans is there's a function to every behavior good, bad, or indifferent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so with that, um, whether our perspective and how we choose to perceive it may be very different from the person that's experiencing it. So one thing we may see a lot of is parents saying, oh, my child's just cutting for attention. Well, I don't know that it's really attention. Let's look about what the function of that behavior is for your child and maybe let's have a conversation with your child about that um what many people don't understand is that when someone cuts it is it is a release um it's a anxiety release there is a euphoric dopamine that's let out from that experience um which brings someone to continue to do it just like an addict if they keep using drugs um just like someone who continues to drink it's a euphoric it gives it releases dopamine it makes them feel good even if it's for a small period of time um, there are ways that, and, and, and skills that someone can learn in order to prevent that behavior from happening. But if we begin to look through the mindset of every function has a behavior, or yeah, there's a function to every behavior, um, we will be able to look at it in a different perspective. And I think that's one of the things I really try to psychoeducate my parents about is, um, 
why why do we think this is happening? Let's explore that. Let's have a conversation about it. Um, and then, Dr. Chris, to speak to your involuntary voluntary um, question. So, an involuntary uh, commitment is when someone is held against their will to a um, committed to a inpatient facility in the state of Pennsylvania. It's up for five days, so 120 hours. Then there's the voluntary commitment, when someone willingly and voluntarily goes again on their own will. Um, I will say we try to avoid an involuntary commitment for an adolescent as best as we can, um, particularly one because it's can be a little traumatizing for that. I mean, certainly mm -hmm. we utilize it in the emergency need for it, absolutely. But if we can have a more conversation about it and talk about it and really get to that voluntary status, I think that's much more important than it is to say, um, here you're going involuntary. Because that requires a lot from the law and the state and has to be upheld and it uh, does yeah. stay on your record. So it's something that we try to avoid. Um, but I, again, I, never has it ever worked when you take away all the control from a teenager. That's one thing I always like to say is that if we take away 100% control from a teenager, it's never going to be successful. So that's why we try to avoid involuntary, but does in there definitely is cases that we need to utilize it. Yeah, I totally agree. Everything that you said that makes a lot of sense. Um, with that being said, it because there's a lot of or say a lack of mental health professionals, facilities, their availabilities, as you said, you could be waiting days, weeks. Um, and with respect to the parents' perspective, like where do we go? What are our steps when we're noticing? And even if we don't notice and then it happens all of a sudden, our child or ourselves, we are struggling. We have a crisis and what are what are the steps should we take into making this be making ourselves better our kids better because there's a lot of seems like there's there are some limitations with availability and opportunities mm -hmm. for mental health so what do you what do you think i think the the number one thing that always stands out for me is just being present we live in a world where we're so drawn to so many different things at so many different times that we're not really present. And when we can just be present with our children and really just take the time to just think and look at the situation, um, your, your children will notice that. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to be nosy or pry. Um, and don't be afraid to just have a conversation. Um, your as a parent your inability to talk about it will create your child's inability to talk about it um your children learn off of you they so can, they can feel that energy if they know that you're tense yeah. or you're gonna feel like you're gonna punish them for the, any of their answers sure. they can read you a mile away yes if you are comfortable talking about it they will be comfortable talking about it make it a conversation in my family we didn't talk about mental health growing up. It was taboo. Um, and then when we had the conversation, it was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> like, yeah. I can finally talk about it I'm now, sure a you know? lot of people can relate to you, your family, the situation, especially years ago. You just didn't talk about your problems, especially with young men, boys, and even older guys now, just 
it, you don't talk about your feelings. Guys don't mm-hmm. talk about their feelings. You're you're meant to you're viewed as this, you know, this little girl. Or you know, I don't. I have other words I'm thinking of that I don't want to say, sure. but you know, um, and so guys feel like limited on like, hey, I want to cry. I just want you to hold me, and I want to cry, and I want to tell you what I'm thinking or I'm feeling, and like we think that only females should do that, which is totally not the case. So that's another thing. Like a lot of older generations, you know, men that just hold it in all those emotions, which is why sometimes our dads are always like emotionless in that way. Oh, we don't talk about that. Right. So now more families are becoming more open, which is great. Um, but I totally agree with you just being present and taking a moment to make a moment. I really like that. I saw it on a billboard once and it was really resonated with me. Take a moment yeah. to make a moment. And I think, you know, as parents, you always want to be able to fix it for your child. You want to take the pain away. And I think knowing that at times you're not going to be able to do that. So one of the powerful things I've heard someone say is, I may not know what you're going through, but I'll be here with you no matter what. And so... Don't change their experience for them. Just listen to it. Um, you know, just just be there. Be present. Um, ask the questions. Advocate for them. Um, and also, it's okay to tell them that you're scared. It's okay to say that. Um, and I like, the, you know, when I, when I have when I see a client and a parent have a really good relationship, and I, I always take a moment to bring that to their attention. Like, it's really nice to see this, this conversation and relationship that you guys have. Um, I, I think sometimes we don't, people don't hear that enough. And, and to, to take the parent aside and say, you're doing a good job. That's, that's awesome. That is so amazing. And kind of going back to my question about the steps. So yeah, definitely that's the at-home thing that we can do maybe to prevent it or mm-hmm. while they're in the process of your screenings and getting help being present and all that positive reinforcement. You know, the steps of, hey, today I'm noticing my child is having a crisis, what do I do? So there's the hotlines, or the Mm helpline, I should say. So there's the helplines that I mentioned previously. Um, You have some other options, you know, there's some, again, some psychiatrists, some therapy, but not everyone's available. Again, the shortage that I mentioned, it's a lot of, so what do you think is, Dr. Chris, too, the next steps that parents could take or adults take when they're trying to seek help instead of just going to the emergency room? I think, at least from my perspective, one of the underutilized pieces of this team is your pediatrician. Absolutely. And using your pediatrician. And medicine has become very fragmented. And honestly, your pediatrician should be your quarterback. They may not have the expertise, but they should be helping you drive. The other, I think, big advice I would give parents is be fastidious. It is unbelievably challenging. It is unbelievably difficult. You're dealing with insurance. You're dealing with facilities that Kate, as an expert, sometimes wants to pull her hair out because she can't get kids into. Um, It's very challenging. And I think it's important for parents to also really look at self-care of themselves as well while they're going through this and really being there for your kids. I can't stress it enough. It's even from when they're young, 
because um, we do have parents in our audience that have young children. What can you do? It's being present. It's having meals with your child. It's listening. Being and, open, having those conversations. Yeah, and, and like Kate said, you know, having those difficult questions. And none of us are perfect. I'm far from perfect as a parent. And just doing your best. And, you know, I think that's from my standpoint, that's the bottom line. Yeah, and I'd just like to add on to, to adding to the team um, would be keeping the school involved. Let the school know what's going on. I guarantee you they probably have seen some things too. So continuing that conversation, having that conversation with the school, hey, I'm worried about so-and-so. Um, have you guys seen anything? You know, can you do a, a weekly check-in with him at school? Schools are capable of doing that. Um, so really creating a team for your for your child. Yeah, that's an um, excellent and, idea. Yeah. Kind of hitting um, all the corners. Yeah, there's parent support groups. There's support groups for kids going through this. Um, there's options out there. Talk to your pediatrician. Call your insurance company. Um, you know, there's there's various different programs within different counties that um, have a resource uh, program where you can call and get resources. Create a team. You don't have to do this alone. So just a reminder, if you or someone may be considering suicide or having suicidal thoughts, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-85 or 8255. I'll repeat that again, 8255. If you speak Spanish, it's 1-888-628-9454. And if you're an individual that's deaf or hard of hearing, it's 1-800-799-4899. And alternatively, you can text the crisis text line, um, texting um, H-O-M-E to 741-741. And I can't thank Kate enough for being part of our podcast tonight and sharing her expertise with our audience. I believe this will help a multitude of parents and really just help people get to the place that they need to. And she's, as we talked about before, this is this is a, a topic that people don't like to talk about. And she herself is one of the most positive examples of this. So thank you for sharing yes, your, your personal- great information. And again, this goes to show how important mental health is. Adults, adolescents, anybody, super important. So really well, thanks. Thank you guys for letting the conversation happen. It's so important. Let's keep talking about it. So thank you guys. It was so awesome to be here. Um, just a reminder for our audience, um, please subscribe to our podcast at your favorite channel, either Spotify, Arhat Radio, iTunes, many more. Um, you could do it through Blueberry as well. Follow us on social media at Mom and Doc Talk, and we are Kids Health Secrets. You can also check out our website at bloomerwellness.com to get more learning resources. Uh, we have a variety of online classes for parents, as well as parent coaching, where you'll get one-on-one -on -one advice from myself and Azure and our team. And please send us questions. If you have a question for Kate, send them our way. If you have a question for Azure, send them my way. Um, it's info at Bloomer Wellness. We'll see you on the next episode. Yeah, have a great night, guys. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for joining our Mom and Doc Talk. Did any questions come up while you were listening? Share your questions with Dr. Christopher and Azure by visiting www.blueemeraldwellness.com. You can also connect with them on Instagram at we are kids health secrets. Don't forget to rate the show on iTunes or Spotify so we can continue answering your most pressing kids health and parenting questions. 
Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode of Mom and Doc Talk. The content of this podcast, the opinions and information provided by the co-host and guests are for educational purposes only and should not replace the care provided by your child's physician. If you or your child is ill or having an emergency, please call 911 or seek care immediately.